hello everyone and welcome to I Was There, conversations with eyewitnesses to history. And I am Ron Roberson. And I am Jeff Trujillo. And we're two peas in a podcast, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> uh, just two old guys just having a little fun and getting to know people who were eyewitnesses to news. That's right. History. And so, yeah, and so today we're going to set a little bit of history of our own yes. in that we have a special guest today <laughs> that came to us through actual listeners of our podcast. Yes. And so today we're going to be talking to a gentleman named Norm Silvers. Norm Silvers. And he has a really interesting background about the early days of Los Angeles radio. Right. And well, not some, just information, but he's kind of like a pioneer in a way, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, absolutely. And I don't want to give it away, right. uh, but he has a little bit of history that is very unique and has long-lasting uh, ramifications. And so mm-hmm. well, we're going to talk to him a little bit about that. Yes. But yeah, this came to us from our listeners, Dave and Tanya, and yeah. I want to thank them. And yeah. uh, as we've talked about, we're hoping that as we do these podcasts, people will listen. People yes. will say, hey, I know somebody. Yes. And this person saw this. And like so us, subscribe. They con- and subscribe. And, and they contacted us and said, hey, we've got somebody that you need to speak to. So without further ado, let's bring in Norm. All and right. let's, let's, uh, let's get the podcast going. <laughs> so welcome, Norm. Thank you. Good thank, to meet you, Thanks sir. for joining us. So we spoke a little bit beforehand, but you said that you were uh, in L.A. radio, kind of in the golden years of radio. And so if you could give us a little history about that. Well, it, I think it all started when I finally tried to choose some kind of profession in my mid to late 20s, I believe. And I went to a radio and TV school in Hollywood called Don Martin School of Radio and Television Arts and Sciences sometime in the uh, middle of 1957. Went through uh, structure and the courses that they had, including the preparation for the FCC test for a first-class FCC operator's license. Got out of there in... Uh, toward the end of 1959, and I found out the chief engineer of a station called KCBH, 98.7 in those days on the FM dial. They needed another operator and announcer, I believe, I think, probably just to work the board, uh, the controls, and I got the lead that they needed somebody like on a Sunday uh, shift, and I drove up to... uh, the station on top of Briarcrest Ridge in Beverly Hills and talked to the chief engineer and the program director at the time. can't remember his name. Hamilton Williams came on later. And uh, they hired me uh, right out of the TV school, and I got the job working the board and turning on the transmitter and turning it off for, I think, one day a week for a while, and then I worked into a full-time shift at uh, KCBH back in 1959. 1959. So going back to the Don Martin School, Mm -hmm. you had mentioned in our conversation that quite a few familiar names came through that training session. And so who were some of the folks that you got to meet there? The two that come to my mind, uh, there were others, was Don Reverts was his name. Eventually he took the name of the real Don Steele. Yes. And um, the one who did the broadcast of the Rose Parade all the time, Bob... Um, Eubanks? Eubanks. Yes, Bob. Bob Eubanks was there at the time. Uh, a guy named Jim Stick, I believe. I think he went on to KRLA mm. for a career there, as did Bob Eubanks. And uh, those are the three that I can remember. They were all good friends. Now, in going to that school, was the goal to be on the air? Is that what you were... Either way. Uh, in either straight engineering, working uh, the board, as we call it, the console, or uh, doing both, as they called it in those days, was a combo man. That was a big talk. 
In those days, of course, you had to have a first phone to work at different stations. I think it was 250 watts and above that you needed a first phone. And you needed one at the FM station also. So that's the reason uh, I went there. How long was the training uh, that you had to go through there? Uh, it was two years. It was a okay. two-year course at okay. Don Martin. Yeah. It was very popular at the time, across from Bordner's, I think. Very popular place for the Hollywood folks. Uh-huh. <laughs> what, uh huh. What what prompted you to want to be in radio? Uh, I originally I had uh, designs on being a, a cameraman, a TV camera, because I liked uh, photography. There was no videography at the time, and uh, so that I figured that was the place to go to become a cameraman. And we were trained to use. It was all black and white in those days. It was wasn't color. But I gravitated toward uh, working uh, as an announcer and engineering, as they called it. Gotcha. Know. So the the radio station that you ended up at, the KCBH, in doing a little bit of research, it had a pretty colorful history in that it was actually started in 1948 by. Metro Goldwyn Mayer or Mayer, Mayer mm-hmm. and it was KMGM. Right. Do you know much about that history? The only things that I know about that is that Art Crawford, who had the record store in downtown Beverly Hills, found out about the possibility of purchasing KMGM, and did so. And then, uh, but that had been in the middle to late fifties, and I got up there in '59, so. Art Crawford had already set that up at 98.7. Gotcha. And so it's still 98.7 today, right? It's KYSR, I think. After they changed KCBH, they changed it to KJOI. I think it was the next one. I think Coca-Cola bought it originally from Art Crawford, and then it transpired to a number of other different owners. Gotcha. I don't know who owns it now. Uh, I think iHeartMedia owns it. It's iHeart. Ron was pretty interested in that one of the... Why don't you tell us about one of the first guests they had at KMGM? Oh, yeah. this was... I, was, I was just reading some of the notes that we had here, and I understand that uh, uh, Lassie was the, <laughs> the first guest. And I love Lassie, man. I, I just had a little flashbacks right now. You know, I, thinking that, about Lassie, I had to listen that to that. That would be a tough interview. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> I would have loved to hear what he had yeah, to say, though. You know how to speak the language. <laughs> So, so then we move forward to, so you joined, I mean, it was bought by the Crawfords. Now they owned a record store. Uh, what street that was on in Beverly Hills, I don't remember. From what I, again, I, I did a little research. It was on Rodeo Drive. Okay. And evidently it was called the Record Store to the Stars. So Sounds they, familiar. Evidently they had a lot of celebrities that would come in there and whatnot. And they said they would play the records from their store on the radio. That's where the source of the music How they originally started, I don't know, but it transformed into, uh, uh, we sign on at 6 o'clock in the morning and uh, there would be a, a morning concert. It was classical when I got there, the first two hours, 6 to 8, and then from 8 to 10, they, I eventually got a show called Musical Interlude, where we would play excerpts uh, from Broadway productions and guitar music and folk music. As a matter of fact, I have a beautiful little note from Burl Ives. Mm. Oh, wow. Who, wow. And, and his personal stationery, and it said, Mr. Silvers, you're, you're so kind, thank you. <laughs> oh, now, wow. I had nothing to do with playing all of his records, but the program manager, director, uh-huh. would include his albums in there. And I just, uh, possibly because I love folk music, so I might have played a little bit more Burl Lives than others. <laughs> but it was, I still have it. It's rather interesting. So, and then at 8 to 10, and 10 o'clock, we'd go back to the concert or serious music or concert music, 
classical music, whichever. Uh, 12 o'clock, there was something called serenade, and uh, that was just, uh, some people call it uh, elevator music. You know, it was mm. Montefani and Percy Faith, okay. a number of uh, different bands like that for an hour and then at one o'clock there would be another classical program and the main thrust was uh, the concerto from Coldwater Canyon which started I believe at eight o'clock and carried uh, for a couple of hours in the evening so that was a very popular show which was all classical and we were playing LPs primarily and there was also a wonderful program uh, Art Crawford subscribed to a program from the Boston Pops Orchestra the Boston Symphony and they would send out 10 inch open reels for our ampexes 15 inches per second and that was eventually when whether we were doing that monorally I don't remember but when I got there we we had that program and eventually it was in stereo. It was just absolutely magnificent mm-hmm. stereo broadcast with that speed of the tape. Uh-huh. So basically that was it. Uh, it was primarily concert. Uh, we had some and weekends. There were some different things. Uh, classical guitar. Uh, a good friend of mine that helped me out. Gordon Correll was one of the announcer and engineers there. He had a guitar program. I had a my first program of Hawaiian music. Mm. Uh, oh, wow. One half hour on a Saturday, I think. <laughs> and my opening was Aloha Oi. Uh, <laughs> Aloha, something like that. <laughs> they broke the youngster in. And uh, we had played dis- uh, LPs and, and tapes. We had Webley Edwards uh, from Hawaii. So it was, it was a good program. A lot of fun with Hawaiian music. <laughs> Hey, you kind of touched on it a little bit, uh, Norm, um, about the programming. And I was reading here in uh, some of our notes about uh, it being referred to as a daytime station. Um, what's the difference in a daytime station? I uh, know we signed on at 6 o'clock and uh, shut down at midnight, and that was it. Just dead air? After yeah, that. we were done. Wow. So nothing broadcast after midnight? Nothing. No. Wow. But then TV used to be like that too, right? You'd get the... I, yeah, I remember yeah, the, the test pattern. the anthem and the <laughs> test pattern. Uh, <laughs> that's right. And that was it. Yeah, we would shut down and uh, the uh, John would Davis, our engineer, would often be working on that transmitter because there were always problems in one way or another. And there was another FM station. It was KMLA. I think they were 102.5. They had their antenna on the tower structure. So there were, you know, it was KCBH at 98.7 and mm-hmm. KMLA, and they had their own programming format. They were on the tower, and we eventually used them in what we called double FM stereo, and I can explain that to you when you're ready for it. Sure. Um, before we started with the compatible FM broadcasting, which was allowed by the uh, FCC in, I think, 61, perhaps. I might have my years off. I think it was 61. Okay. Well, let's let's get into that a little bit because that's really kind of the really historic thing that you were involved with. So, for yeah. our listeners and for myself, because I don't quite understand it, I know there's AM and there's FM. Right. Now, when you joined the radio station, was it AM or FM? It was only FM. It was only FM. But okay. Art Crawford and the owner and John Davis, the chief engineer, had worked with an AM station early on and had actual stereo broadcasting and were one channel. You could listen to the FM at 98.7. I don't know which AM station it was that they broadcast on the right-hand right hand side. So the early pioneers, the ones who had FM receivers in their homes, also had their AM radio, so you could listen to some stereo. That started 
and mm-hmm. ended before I got there. But Crawford did have that going. Eventually, before they had the compatible FM broadcast, we had what we called double FM. We would feed our one channel, left channel, into 98.7, and KMLA we would use for the right channel. So it was tough (laughs) enough getting homes with one FM receiver, much less two. So, so to listen wow. to a stereo broadcast, you'd have to have two radios with two, two FM receivers with two on two different stations. That's right, and you had wow. perfect separation. Okay, and I remember we started at six o'clock. I think it was on Sundays we started originally. At five fifty-nine, I would listen to the KMLA announcer coming up on six o'clock. He knew that I was going to switch over a switch and feed our frequency, our source music, into their frequency. So he had to be done. So it was 559.59, so basically (laughs) one or two seconds before 6 o'clock, he would stop talking. I would flip a switch, press my remote button, and we would, or a a, a LP, and start our music. So you had had to tune 98.7 on left, (laughs) <laughs> 102.5 and you had stereo sound wow and that wow. was before the compatible fm came around wow. so norm I, I'm, I'm a little confused um what is the difference between am and fm I'm well to that you're, you might be talking about it's just the frequencies that the fcc has allocated mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh the fm is at, at a much higher frequency of some sort so the technical part of it i I studied it and knew about it, but I can't explain it yeah. exactly right now. They're just they're two different ball games. From what I read, I guess FM was more appealing because it had less static and better clarity. I think AM had the static. Right. That or, would I'm, be sorry, right. I'm sorry. AM, right. You're right. right. AM right. had the static. And right. FM, FM was much cleaner. Yes, right. and that's why kind of the, the transition to FM and, and the stereo came Well, the full frequency response supposedly is with, is with FM, and AM didn't have that bandwidth to get the full mm. frequency from the very low to the high end. Mm. So right. FM had it right. built into it. Yeah. Even the DJs were a little different on FM and AM as well, right? It seemed like the AM guys were a little more high octane than <clears> they the, were. The they DJs were. FM sort of low keyed it quite uh-huh. a bit more, a little more sophisticated, supposedly. <laughs> <laughs> Poor choice of words. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, a, that's what we try to promote or connote. <laughs> so when you would play these records back, were you on a, a single turntable? Single turntable. And, but then the signal was split between two, set to two different stations and two. That's stations. right. So if you were in a car, you were, you didn't have that capability. First of all, yeah, in those days, uh, it was tough enough to get homes with FM receivers and the car market was really, really uh, down in the doldrums yeah it was still building you know becker and blaupunkt were two of the big names that people started putting in their cars but it was tough to get the what they call the mobile traffic sure Mm -hmm. and it took quite a number of years for that to blossom the way it did but you're right they were probably monaural so even though we're playing stereo you're only going to get one channel right Mm -hmm. wow and and when we did the double fm channel if you only had one receiver you tune it to either 98.7 or 102.5. Mm-hmm. I believe that was the uh, the numerical number for KMLA. So you'd only get one channel. So in those years that you worked, from 59 to, I think you said... In the uh, early 60s. To the early yeah. 60s. I mean, that's Four when really years. rock and roll was kind of really coming to its height. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then records were starting to be produced 
in stereo where you'd want both channels so you could hear different instruments on mm -hmm. different sides. And so I would imagine having that stereo capability would be something that everybody wanted. Oh, yeah, that's what we hoped for. Yeah. <laughs> we actually even hoped that FM would give a rebirth to the old radio programs, the oh. drama programs. Oh, interesting. Uh, we were hoping that that would, you know, where you could have the stereo, which enhances because of our two ears and the way we listen. It would have been a wonderful venue for the radio drama shows. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that never worked out. Wow. God, I remember, I remember those. You just gave me a little flashback, uh, you know, of some of the old uh, radio shows, uh, that would sit by the Long Ranger and Boston Blackie. Yeah, well, and, and I remember Let's Pretend on Saturday mornings. Yes, uh, yes know, sir. Cream of wheat is so good to yep. eat. <laughs> if you eat it every day, yes. Uh, uh, but, yeah, it would have, and especially the dr dramatic shows. Yes. Really heavy dramatic. It would have been enhanced by I remember. the movement. Yes. Because, you, you know, you could hear a train going from the left uh, speaker to the right speaker. Uh -huh. yeah. And so there were a lot of gimmicks to try to promote that. Yeah, beautiful enhancement of motion. Yes, so, yeah. Uh, but FM was uh, the you know the way to go. It was very clean compared sure. to AM. So the big the big historic piece of history that you were involved with. Tell us about that. Well, if you're talking about we started that double FM broadcasting that lasted for for a, a number. I don't know if it was years, but the FCC was uh, had uh, a lot of input into some kind of what they call the compatible FM because so many people were only getting one channel so mm -hmm. and they knew that FM had what they called a subcarrier of sort that they could put that to use in a number of different ways so i think in the early in 61 uh, it was RCA or GE and Zenith combined i was just reading about that and the FCC finally narrowed it down to that particular system that would allow people with only a monaural system to hear both channels ah. and people with stereo would hear both channels obviously so our chief engineer i set us up to have a promotion and get us started with the compatible fm broadcasting on one sunday noontime that was set up i believe that the some of the stations on the East Coast and the Midwest, I had heard that a station in Chicago had been one of the first to use the compatible system. And I understand that KCBH was the first one west of the Mississippi uh, to set it up and to broadcast in it. So we had a big promotion that you're going to hear compatible FM stereo on this mm. Sunday noontime. Wow. And a, a, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Wendell happened to be an announcer for KCBH. He did a voice track, and I was the engineer at the time, so I was going to work the board. Bruce had his intro and his back announce on a, on a tape that I could cue up once he had to enter the music and say, now here, Norm Silvers is going to play this song and, or this record or something, and then I would have the record queued up and I would play that, and then I would cue his voice up for his back announce when the music was over I wouldn't say anything my mic was closed but mm -hmm. I would put his voice on and he would back announce it then read a commercial and go to the next music so I was just working the board this one Sunday morning when we had our first production the thing that I remember most vividly 
is that I had queued up a London, they call it FFRR, something like that, uh, a London stereo record. Hmm. And it happened to be a little bit warped. Records would get that way at the sure. time. And we had the large turntable, and I had it queued up perfectly. And we did what we call slip starting. We would start, and there was some felt underneath the record. So I would start the turntable, and I would hold my finger on uh, my hand on top of the record to keep it from moving. Mm -hmm. And when he entered it, then I would run the pots up, the controls up, and release it. And it would, you know, it'd go <laughs> maybe five or six inches. You'd be at your first <laughs> note. <clears throat> Well, Art Crawford Sr. and John had set up the, and the, the tone arm on this big turntable was sort of jury-rigged to a certain extent, and it, it wouldn't always track exactly right. Well, here's his first record. <laughs> and so this is the first time that FM is being broadcast in, in full compatible stereo, FM stereo. West of the Mississippi and in I, the United States. Exactly. And I released <laughs> that thing, and I ran it. I ran both pots up. It wasn't a ganged <laughs> pot at the time. I had uh -huh. to turn left channel and right channel up okay. at the same. And that tone arm jumped about three inches oh. all the way <laughs> and came back down on top of the record all the way to the spindle in the center. <laughs> and I, I don't think I ever moved as fast getting those pots back down again. Cued it back up. I think I put a quarter on or something on top of the tone arm. And to to I remember that. putting a penny yeah. on top right, of the record. Right, to, yeah, to hold the needle down. Yeah, yeah. and I cued it back up and... And started up again, didn't say a word on the <laughs> microphone, and let it go, and we got through it. Wow. Wow. Uh, but I, they had egg all over your face. That was, <laughs> but we got through, uh, I think it was two or three hours of it, and it came out pretty well. Wow. That was... What was the general consensus at that time? Was uh, it like a rah-rah moment? Uh, I was in there by myself, of course, <laughs> and no one else was around at the time, but I, I had never, no one ever said anything about <laughs> you know the noise that that tone arm made getting that record all over. So, but the feedback on the sound, yes, people must have been amazed uh, uh, when well, they heard eventually. That. You know that was the beginning of it, and everybody joined in, and yeah. So we had our compatible FM stereo. Wow, that that's amazing. Yes, I indeed. mean that, that that's to be involved in the, the very first broadcast in the first United States. One, that's right. that's that's incredible. That's history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and LA being such a, a a big market, I just have a question. Why didn't the announcer? Why wasn't he there? You had him on tape. Why why didn't he come in and do it live? Uh, it was it was a tight budget. <laughs> <laughs> Even then. in those days, <clears throat> it was none of us were you know getting paid what they. Right. They're sure. getting paid in, in several years later. <laughs> so Bruce would come in and or, or other announcers would make the voice tapes also. So you could do a, a whole two-hour shift or a three-hour shift, something like that. Intro, back announce on a tape and get done and you're out of there in, in a half hour or so. So it was a money-saving wow. bit at the time. That would have been much better if someone had been live, but mm. we weren't thinking that far into the future. <laughs> now, let's let's try this, see if it works. Sure. <laughs> One step sure. at a time. Yeah. Wow. So your radio station, and you showed us some pictures, and we'll put some of those pictures yeah. on our Facebook page, if you, if you don't mind, oh, just so people yeah. can kind of see what you were working That's with. Good-looking guy, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm jealous. <laughs> we have faces for radio. <laughs> so. Indeed. Speak <laughs> but, for yourself, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> but, the, you know, we in that picture... There's a lot of equipment around you. Right. I mean, it took right. a lot of equipment 
tech just to have the, the the technical capability to do this what what was the, the studio like you said it was a house and then there was a tower next to it right <clears throat> the tower on top of Briarcrest Ridge the Crawfords lived uh, in the home right next to it and the studio the KCBH studios were built uh, uh, apparently either a KMGM had built that or Art had done that himself, I don't know. But it was built around the base of the tower structure. And uh, John Davis was the chief engineer. John was a dear friend and passed away a few years ago. He did all, you know, helped set up the transmitter and kept it running. It was 75 kW kilowatts and um, helped set up, or the studio might have been there already, but John was influential in, in setting it up and having all the recorders and, and the, the console, the board sitting there properly and everything working properly. And it, he, was, uh, he was a genius at it. Wow. Now, I understand that the tower is still there from, from what I was I reading. I understand it is. And, and this is a huge operation. I mean, this tower, how tall was the tower? Oh, gosh. I, what, whatever the standard FCC requires it, because they had to have that rotating beacon on top. Right, right. And that light had to be changed every once in a while because it would burn out. And they would hire a youngster, a teenager, <laughs> to climb up there. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> change the light bulb? And he could, yeah. <laughs> and he had nerves of steel. Didn't bother Ooh. him at all. I, I, yeah, I think it's several hundred feet tall yeah. from, what, from what I read. It, it's... Uh, it's pretty it, tall. It could be. Uh, I'm not sure about a couple hundred. Uh, and it's on the top of a mountain, right? Briarcrest Briar Ridge, yes. And that, uh, that, that's basically between Coldwater and Laurel Canyon and just above Mulholland Drive. Mm. So you're in Hollywood, basically. Yeah. Wow. And I think technically they put the tower, from what I read, it was either the studio or the tower. They, they specifically placed it in Beverly Hills because that was KCBH and they wanted to promote the fact that it was in Beverly Hills. Well, that stood for Crawfords of Beverly Hills. Mm. That's what it was, right? Amazing. Wow, was amazing. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing <laughs> history to me. I mean, and, and again, to be working in the kind of those golden years, tell us some of the, you were telling us before we started this, some of the shows that you did and that you would play and, and some of the artists that you, did yeah. you get to meet any of those? The only one or? that I ever met was Morton Gould. For some reason, he, the conductor had come up to the station to promote one of his albums and uh, have a picture of the two of us standing in front of the transmitter holding one of his albums. Mm. And we chatted for a few minutes. Eugene Ormandy had come up there. I don't think I was there at the time, but supposedly he he might have come up to the station. Or, But I did talk to him on the phone one time and uh, chatted with him, and there was something going on, some kind of promotion. But those are the only two that yeah. that I remember. The concerts in Coldwater Canyon, What were were those records or were those? They were all uh, LPs or the, uh, I think we did the 15-inch tapes from Boston Pops and the Boston Symphony mm-hmm. on Concerto from Coldwater Canyon. And there probably were some seven and a half inch reels that we had at the mm-hmm. time. And those were two track. It was before the four track came out on the seven and a half inch reels. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And that was a money saving be- uh, effort by the record producers because they could, it was expensive to have those two track seven and a half inches. So they were able to use the four track and run through and then turn around and come back. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just amazing. What, 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 did, what did FM mean uh, to, to the artist? Um, was it sort of a game changer, if you will? Yeah, what, I wasn't the artist, but all I know is that we believed in the, the beauty of the sound. Yes. And the, the full frequency response, the cleanliness of it, and that it was, we thought it was going to be the future of broadcasting. 
mm. and that am would fade away and mm -hmm. die on the vine but yeah. of course that never never happened and whether fm has ever reached its full potential i'm not sure it mm. ever has again going back to right. the thought of the spatial response uh, on dramatic programs and, or ball games yes. or something like that sure but now on on television it's uh, you know they have the stereo signals and host, and i got a you know f five or six seven eight channels on stereo so yeah. they've come a long way yeah. yeah, I mean, if you think about rock and roll, and I, I know, you know, I grew up in the 80s, and, and you know, Ron, you're a little older than I, but if you think about rock and roll in those albums, and I mean, it was a big deal to be able to hear the different instruments mm -hmm. in different ears, and then when headphones became popular, and you would listen, and, oh, I can hear the drums over here, and listen to what they're saying over here, and mm -hmm. the different parts, FM's a, it was a big deal. Yeah, it, it was thrilling, especially when you had the kind of amplifiers, you know, the Macintosh uh, tube types and uh, all the, the great wow. manufacturers, and the, the sound was so clean and, uh, and beautiful sound, and um, it, was, it was a treat, and we, we believed in it and thought it was going to go somewhere. Sure, well, mm. I, I would say it did. Yeah, I'd yeah, say so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure did. Now, now, you said you were both the engineer, you did engineer work, and forgive me, I forget the, the other positions you did. It sounds like you might have worn a lot of hats in that studio. Well, yeah, in those days, they, they called it a combo man when you came out of the radio school and you had your first, first phone or their first class FCC license. If you were a combo man where you could announce and engineer, and had the qualification engineering meaning just to play the records and cue them up you're not going in changing some of those huge tubes in the right. in the transmitter or the if light bulbs as, <laughs> uh, yeah. as a matter of fact we'd stay as far away from that transmitter as you could because it was a lot of heat so that was the way we looked at it do you so you did do some on-air announcing you said eventually i'll get back to the combo man so yeah. that would enhance your ability to get a job, especially in AM mm. radio, is what a lot of the uh, graduates from the school did to be able to announce and engineer. Because mm -hmm. if you just could do only one, and there were those kind of folks. And when I worked at KPOL, I think it was 1540 in those days, AM and FM, and their transmitter was up in El Sereno, uh, just by Pasadena. We worked, I would do the engineering or play the records and the, and the tapes and take transmitter readings. And there were two, or there were always a couple of announcers working in their booth. And I would control their microphone. They would play their own records, but they weren't, they had no first, most of them didn't have a first class license. So they couldn't technically be playing records or working with the transmitter or the board somehow so interesting so that that license gave you license to to do all of those things qualified as far as the fcc was concerned oh, to be able to handle that kind of equipment and knowing what you're doing especially when you go out to the base of the transmitter and take the readings that the fcc required every night at a certain time or a certain time of the day and to you'd have to change the pattern in, in am change the pattern at a certain time so that your frequency wouldn't dovetail or go on top of someone else's frequency. As a matter oh, of fact, uh -huh. there were people, we got mail from Australia <laughs> who would, because the heavy side layer uh, would raise up at night uh -huh. uh, and the signal would bounce all the way down there. And there oh, were my people, wow. people, so we, you had to change, certain stations always had to change patterns, especially if they had high wattage. Wow. Um, so that it wouldn't interfere with someone else's frequency. Wow. Yeah. 
So, and the FCC said, well, we better have someone qualified who knows what they're doing. In order to, uh, right, so right, everyone's right. not stepping on each other. <laughs> right, right, exactly. right, right. Wow. Do you have any idea what your audience size was no, in those I have, days? No, in those days. It was, it was small, of course. Yeah. It was very small, all FM, in the late 50s, early 60s, and then it started burgeoning. But probably covered all of Los Angeles and maybe some of the valley? Uh, all of the Los Angeles basin. Uh-huh. Uh, how far out further than that, I don't know. Had to be a huge market. Yeah, yeah, yeah at that time, yeah. It was, and uh, we had salesmen that would go out and try to sell time. That was another issue, is getting people to buy time Yeah. And on FM, and you're selling something, it was, well, how many FM receivers have you got out there? Well, I don't know exactly, uh-huh. but I'd like to have you buy this time anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of blue skying going on. <laughs> how big was the staff there? And and how, what was it like working with the other folks? There? Oh, they were everybody was uh, very comfortable working with each other. We, we had our dreams set up, and we had one chief engineer, John Davis. Um, we had a program director. Eventually, uh, Hamilton Williams came on board, and with the, he was knowledgeable about classical music. And one, two, or three. Maybe we had about three shifts. Maybe small staff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, three or f- four announcers. Hamilton worked the mic, uh, Gordon Carell, myself, a few others, and there were some people who would just work the board periodically, so it was a small staff, very small. And who picked the music? How did you figure out Ordinarily, it would be the program manager, program director, uh, Hamilton Williams, um, and Gordon Carell chose a lot of his work, uh, works before uh, Hamilton got there. And uh, I could play, you know, it, here we'd see the album of Percy Faith or Mondovani or the Broadway, and it was my choice on which ones mm-hmm. we'd play. Ordinarily, we'd just let it track through, mm-hmm. and there'd uh-huh. be a little bit of dead air as it spiraled through from one band to another. So, uh, so, so would you we, play we didn't enti- have to keep it real tight like AM broadcast. Right. Gotcha. Did you play a, an album in its entirety then? We could play the whole side of one album, sure. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Just, there weren't a lot of spots. There weren't a lot of commercials, so we had to fill that time. And I think we had a policy of only four commercials per hour, so that was also a dream, as if we could keep the commercials down yeah. and make enough money to keep uh-huh. it on the air, that would be the best of all possible sure, worlds. Right. Yeah, but it, it didn't doesn't work out that way. Well, that's something Especially that hasn't gone away, is, no. has it? <laughs> no, no. There's commercials on everything now. We that's probably right. have commercials on this podcast yeah, that we don't even pretty know. Soon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have to do any editing or anything, uh, any splicing? Uh, yes, I had to do that on the quarter inch uh, the tapes. Mm-hmm. As a matter that's of fact, <laughs> we were playing the Boston Pops or the Boston Symphony one time on this big Ampex with the ten inch reels. 15 inches per second, and all of a sudden, it the tape snapped. Oh, no. <laughs> and it's starting to spool out. Okay, and the take-up reel is just sort of spinning and slowing down. And it's feeding. The music is still playing, but that tape is just all piling up. And I saw, you know, 40 yards of tape on the floor. And it was still rolling, so somehow I was able to find the end of that tape and the end of it on spinning around on the take-up reel. And I think I got some scotch tape, <laughs> cut it thin enough, and taped those two together. Yep, and let and it then go. I started putting my finger in there and wound it all up. And 
And then because I we had to, I think we left the tails out, but at least it was all on the reel. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Spaghetti mess. <laughs> you know, and you look at that and say, this can't be happening. <laughs> commercials were the same. Did you did you have to do uh, carts uh, for your commercials there, that kind of stuff? Uh, no, all of ours were live. There oh. were all of ours were live. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I'm trying to think back when. We had no carts at the time, cartridges mm -hmm. that we fed in there. There were some on tapes. There were audio tapes, I think the seven and a half inch. There were some audio tapes that we used for some commercials. Mm -hmm. We did, uh, we read most all the copy live. So uh, yeah, that that came later. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you, do you remember your, doing your call sign? Do you remember what you would say when you would do that? Uh, this is just KCBHFM 98.7 Beverly Hills. That's all we had to do. That was it. That was it. You probably had to do that what once every half hour or something like that. Um, I'm not. I don't even remember a mandate for whether it's FCC or, mm -hmm. or that we had to do it at a certain time. Well, we just automatically did it at probably each time we opened the mic, mm -hmm. uh, which it could be a half hour. You know, we'd play a whole concerto, a whole symphony. It might go 45, 50, 55 minutes without any and then we would probably give our call sign wow. at that time mm -hmm. yeah there's some, <laughs> some wonderful stories <laughs> i was gonna I'm say sure. what, you have a couple favorites yeah, that you can I share. Had, come on norm i, I know you got come on this <laughs> might go on for a while i had a, i had a 1960 fiat 600 that i drove up and uh, parked it right next to the station went in turned on the transmitter started my shift and one morning I'm up there by myself, of course. Uh, the Crawfords are in their house, probably still sleeping, and I put on a <laughs> McDowell piano concerto. Hmm. Let it play, and I and I we had speakers outside. John had set up a speaker outside so we could turn it up. If we happened to go out of the building, uh, you could hear the the music playing. If anything happened, you could run back in, because they were known to uh, stick in a, a groove sure. periodically or. A, turn uh, tone arm bouncing around as you've heard before hmm. so I walked out and I think I washed my car I had the hose up there <laughs> and I finished washing it and I tried to start it and of course I got the distributor wet and it wouldn't start so I said well if I just because it's on a real steep incline coming around the house up to the station so I said if I just put turn the ignition on, put it in low gear or hot second gear, mm -hmm. and I coast down a little bit. I can probably get this started. Well, I tried, and I got down to the end of the driveway by the house, and I looked back. I could still see the station. Well, you know, I have an FCC license, and you're not supposed to leave your watch. You know what I mean? So I'm looking, but no one's up there. So I said, well, i got to get this car started now. So I tried it a little bit more because it's downhill all the way to... Uh, Sunset Boulevard. Sure. Basically. <laughs> You're in Hollywood Hills. Now, so I'm still going, and but there's a fire road that led up from the back of the Crawford's place, and it led down to Mulholland Drive, quarter of a mile down, or less than that. So, and but there's a chain across uh, the fire road, but I got close to it, and I reached out of the driver's side, and I lifted that chain up, and I was chain up, and I was able to get my Fiat underneath <laughs> oh, it. Oh, wow. Okay, because <laughs> wow. I'm going to get that car started. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking back up. I'm several hundred yards away. I can't hear the music anymore. Uh-oh. I got all the way down to Mulholland Drive, 
a long way away from the station. That mm. music is still playing. Yikes. <laughs> and I'm looking and I stand up and I look and I said, I don't believe what I've just done. <laughs> I coasted down Mulholland Drive to Laurel Canyon. Somehow I got there, ran into an elementary school, went into the principal's office and I said, whatever her name was, I said, could you have somebody give me a ride back up to the radio station? <laughs> no one else has ever heard this story. <laughs> Trust me. She said that she got the custodian, God bless him. He got in his car and, and we went straight back up the way we came and I jumped, I got up to the chain that was blocking the road, jumped over that uh, chain, I thanked him very much, ran up and I'm out of breath I get back and there's nothing coming out of the mute oh, no. because it's been a half hour 40 <laughs> minutes already long record and that record is going <laughs> in the center no one ever called don't answer your question about the size of the audience <laughs> I'm not sure anybody ever heard it but I'll never live that That's down funny. it was a nightmare I can't believe this is happening what did I just do I've, I you know I had visions of losing my license and yeah. being fired <laughs> That's funny how unique to have like you said, it was their house and the radio station right, right next, next to door it. Yeah, each other, the so. family, family-run business. Wow. The wow. Crawfords were good people. Well, that's <laughs> great. Well, so then you ended up, uh, and we'll just kind of wrap this up with, you bet. You, you were in radio for how long? Oh, and then, and then what did yeah, you end up? Yeah, seven, seven, eight, nine years. And I had gone back to Arizona and went to Arizona State and got a uh, bachelor's degree and ended up with enough hours to get a teaching credential, came back to California, and uh, went into education, mm, taught nice. school for 30 years, mm -hmm. and retired in Where did you teach? Mm -hmm. I was at um, Catella High School. I was in uh, Serrano Intermediate. I was at Orange High School as assistant principal at uh, Magnolia and oh, wow. Cypress and uh, Anaheim High School. Oh, wow. That's where I retired from. Yeah. And what, yeah. what did you teach? What was your... Uh, I... I taught Spanish, uh, history and Spanish. I ended up, Spanish was my minor, uh -huh. and I ended up teaching Spanish for quite a few years, and then the last 10 years I was in the administration at the high schools. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's oh. amazing. Yeah, what a career. It's quite a yeah, career. <laughs> what, what do you, if I'm jumping ahead, yeah, Jack, no, but what do you think about the way radio is today? And uh, even this podcast is uh, a whole new thing. Yeah, yeah you know, is, uh, yeah. That that's passed me right by. But I, I still, I still look back at the days of um, dreaming how FM could be uh, what we had all hoped it could be. Uh, great sound and great, yeah. great programming and educational. So uh, it's it, FM is still around. It's changed still, a great yeah. deal. Yes, and they they copied AM. Many of them, you mm -hmm. know, the formats we used to call the like KRLA when Eubanks and Jim Steck, I think Jim did the news over there, and uh, Don Reverts. <laughs> we called them, those radio stations were called Screamers in those days uh -huh. because, you know, there was a lot of yep. yelling going on, especially, <laughs> especially Don, but he was a great guy. <laughs> so to answer your question, I, 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 it's, it's come and it's gone, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, were, yeah. They, were good, they were good days, yeah. and it was, it was exciting. And how interesting that, as you said, with the capability, the stereo capability that you, the FM has, 
that it wasn't explored to its extent with theatrical radio. Right. It's, that's <clears throat> a really interesting it uh, is. Yeah, perspective. It is. Yeah. yeah, it could have uh, added a lot to it, but it uh, never went that way. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm speechless. That's, me too. <laughs> I, I just find you absolutely fascinating um, yeah, with were. your career and all. Uh, and, and to work in, in Hollywood at that time, I yes. mean, what a magical time with, yes. with the music and with the... The style. Yes. And, I mean, just... Yeah, there were a lot of dynamics going on in all sorts of areas, and uh, yeah. everybody was hustling to do something neat. Yeah. Right. yeah. What was yeah. it like living in Hollywood during that uh, time? You know, when I was there, I, we were going to school and then working odd jobs. I was working at the Bank of America Clearinghouse in downtown Los Angeles. Oh, I think I had the midnight shift. I would drive down the Hollywood Freeway at 11 o'clock and leave the building at seven in the morning and drive back and go to class at Don Martin's and be out by one o'clock and go home and go to bed and mm. wake up when not knowing whether it's daytime or nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it was, you know, you were young and you're chasing your dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Wow, what wow. a dream, though. Yeah. And you actually got to do it. And you were there. You <laughs> yeah, were there to yeah, actually yeah. make history happen for the rest yes. of us. Yes, yes. Especially the high-fidelity uh, high business at the time and going to the trade shows with all the amplifiers and speakers mm. and everybody. It was just a glorious time of people dreaming wow. about great sound. Yeah, yeah. sound. Wow. Yeah. Where would we be without sound, huh? Some of the stuff that we do. Just amazing. I, I've often thought if you lose any of your senses, which would you choose? Your, mm. your eyesight or your hearing? And I'm inclined, I would rather be blind than lose my hearing because then mm. I couldn't hear can't music. Communicate. Mm. Yeah, and music. I couldn't hear music. That's right. Wow. And I, I, I would miss seeing great art, but I, hearing the great classics and opera, and, uh, you so I would take uh, my ears over myself. Mm. Wow. But, but, but you, uh, I'm hoping neither happens. Yeah. <laughs> if you did, what would you want to lose? Uh, you know, well, we, me and you, we, we work in a visual We're field. Visual, so, yeah. yeah, I've always thought visual. But when you bring up, I, I hadn't thought about music and, be, and communication, just being able to talk to other folks. Hopefully and, we never have to make that choice. Exactly. But sometimes <laughs> we... It happens. Yeah. Right, right. And yeah. if I had my druthers, it would, I'd have, to have my hearing than my sight. Both of them, you losing any of them would yeah. be right. devastating. Yeah. Devastating. I did an interview with uh, Al Smith. You know him? No. Uh, from Capitol Records. Okay. Um, and he's I the know. audio guy, won about 25 Grammys or something. And he said something almost uh, basically the same thing that you said. Uh, he was involved with Les Paul and the sound and all that kind of stuff there. And he basically said the same thing you said. Mm -hmm. if, if, if he could keep anything, it would be his hearing more yeah, than anything yeah, else. Yeah. I just thought of that recently. Yeah, interesting. As you, yeah. Well, I, I, like I said, I'm blown away, and I, I, I just want to thank you for sharing the story well, with us. And, and appreciate uh, you guys. Uh, it's part of history that I wasn't aware of. And Same here. I, I would imagine most of our, or a good deal of our listeners, probably never, never thought about that either. But uh, amazing, just, just amazing. So, uh, do you have anything else you want to no, add? No, no. I just appreciate you asking the questions and uh, bringing back all those memories. Uh, sorry to say, the one about going under the chain with my Fiat. It's not something I'd like to remember, but I, I, I got lucky. 
<laughs> I think we've had a, our own Fiat moments. Oh, I think we've. I think we, I, I can think of a few. <laughs> well, thank you, gentlemen. Well, well thank, thank you, you sir. Thank really you appreciate very much. It. Wow. Ron, why don't you take us out of here? Well, man, gosh, I don't want to leave. You know, but I guess we have to, huh? Um, but uh, I, I just uh, again, here's another individual that has done, some, have seen something fantastic. You know, as it relates to history, That's and right. he's telling us about it. You know, it's, you you don't hear this stuff all the time. No, and again, I want to thank Dave and Tanya yes. for bringing Norm to our attention yes. and sharing sharing him with us. Yes. And uh, and I want to encourage our listeners: if you know somebody, please let us know. Um, reach out to us. We're on Facebook. Uh, if you look up I Was There, search the I Was There podcast. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Facebook. Let us know. Soon we'll be going to Zoom, so we'll be able to do longer distance uh, yes. interviews. But yes. uh, looking forward to talking to people. And every time I meet somebody like Norm, I'm just yeah. blown away at some of the things that people see and you know the things that their life has been filled with and the impacts they've made by the things they've done that shared with the rest of us. I mean, we have, we get to listen to FM radio now Yes, in good part because of what Norm uh, helped bring to our ears. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. And we thank you all for joining us on this segment of I Was There Conversations with Eyewitnesses to History. I'm Ron Roberson. And I'm Jeff Trujillo. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.